Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, this week on the Product Thinking Podcast, we're going to talk all about strategy. I'm pretty excited to be joined by Oji Udezwe, who's a CPO of Parsable and formerly the VP of Product at Calendly. I've known Oji for quite a while, and I love the way that he thinks about strategy. At Calendly, he really implemented a product-led strategy, and at Parsable, he's doing some different things. And I think Oji's career as well, working at a variety of different places like Atlassian, Microsoft leading products for consumer and also B2B products has given him a lot of insight into how to set strategy and especially how to come into an organization and figure out how to do it from scratch or how to pull it together when there isn't one. So listen closely to what Oji's got to say. Welcome, Oji. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. Really uh, excited to be here. Me too. I have known you for a while and I think you're one of the best product leaders I have met. And I'm so excited to get your thoughts on product strategy today. And I know you just started a new job, right? In September? Yes, I did. I started as a chief product officer at Parsable, which is a software company, currently enterprise focused, that tries to help the people who are not information workers manage workflows. And the way I think about it actually is... uh, I said to talk to different people, including the board, about it. Is that it's like the Jira for the rest of us, right? Jira is for tech workers, for information workers. As it expands, at last and expands, well, possible wants to be Jira for the rest of the world, and that's eighty percent of the real workforce in the world. So that's the ambition, and to do that, you have to, in many ways, mirror some of the tactics of you know the original Jira, which has to be much more product led, much more bottom up adoption, and so. Part of the task, I think, of possible is to make that sure. Great. So when you, you're talking about being more product-led at Parsable, what do you mean by that? You know, product-led is uh, a concept that you know very well because you teach it. <laughs> but really, it means increasing customer focus, you know, like making sure that every product investment or most of product investment goes towards delighting the people who actually use the product every day. It means being sensitive to customers in terms of the buying journey, the conversion or payment journey. It means being hopefully generous in terms of the pricing so that people find it psychologically easy to adopt a product. It means infusing the entire company with this idea that it's more efficient for everyone, sales, marketing, product, customer success, support, to really execute on a really great product that pulls itself forward. And if you can do that, then your ability to make profit actually increases and to drive margins actually increases because that's frankly the most efficient way to build software in 2021. Great. So it's all starting, you're saying, with the customer. I'm curious, for you, what's the difference between product-led and customer-centric? Is it the same thing or do you see differences there? They're very close, but I guess the easiest way to make a distinction is 
product-led is in many ways a bigger subset, it's a bigger pool than customer-centric. Like you have to be customer-centric to be product-led. But the thing about people who say customer-centric is sometimes this misconception that you do everything customers say. Well, what you do instead is you use customers to understand the right problems to solve and to what sequence to solve them. Customers don't have all the context and they're also ignorant of a company's business goals and its strategy. And the act of product is to marry those things and to manage the tensions of those things with a huge, huge dollop of making sure the customer is really fairly or even pampered in that transaction. And lastly, one of the values I love is don't F the customer. And sort of, it has to be a huge part of product. But... Yeah, I like that. I, I do see people when they think about customer centricity, they're like, oh, we're just going to do everything they say. And they end up being that waiter that just adds everything to the backlog. They're like, oh, well, our customers wanted it, so we're customer-centric. Yeah. But I like, I like your distinction where, you know, it's not necessarily everything the customer wants. It's what's in their best interest, but still achieves business goals. And I think that's really important. So I imagine that getting to a state of being truly product-led takes an enormous amount of good product strategy. So when it comes to product-led, there probably has to be a product-led strategy on there too. To you... What is product strategy? What does that mean? And as a chief product officer, what is your responsibility for creating that? How do you create it? Well, first of all, it's my responsibility. People literally look to you to say, what will we do? And I think product strategy, if we're going to define it, is what will you do and what will you not do, right? And you know, a huge part of that, I guess, is just describing it to a company in an effective way. I expect that this entire year, it will just be about communicating that and communicating layers of that. That's the entire job, I think. Aside from getting great people in and driving the right product operations, the most effective leverage that a CPO can do is what should we invest in and what should we not invest in? And I think if you break down a layer, it's really understanding the company's goals and its vision and mission and the direction that it wants to go commercially whether it's the board's direction or CEO's direction, and then charting a course in the product that helps achieve that as fast as possible. Great. So you have this golden opportunity now with just starting in September. I guess it's, it's probably your first 90 days, right? Just right after your first 90 days. So I imagine a lot of work has gone into figuring out what is Parsible's product strategy. How'd you get started? What did you look at when you were trying to figure out which way do we go? Big question. I think there are two main ingredients. You know, think of product strategy as some kind of soup or cake or something like that. And there are two main ingredients, I think. One is what do customers want? What is their pain? What are their problems? What are the main gaps? Either the things that are preventing product market fit or the things that make you become the market leader. And so this entails really listening. So some of the things that I will do when I get into a company is spend time with customer support, spend time with the smartest salespeople, spend time with the customer success, who are the smartest PMs who know what the customer will listen for, the affinity and the empathy for the customer. And I'll spend a lot more time with those people than not. 
you have to be careful because sometimes you're getting vignettes and you have to sort of make sure that you see the whole picture, which can take some time. And so you have to set expectations with your CEO or the board to give you some space to do that as much as possible, which, by the way, is hard during a pandemic because you can actually go visit people and so on and so forth. The second part of product strategy, I think, is what are the ambitions of the company? What does it want to do? But not only its ambitions, but what is it good at? What is its DNA? Who's staffed? And what are the skill sets of people who are staffed? They're people who can come up with a strategy and it cannot be executed because you miss you missed on what we could actually do, right? So product strategy has to be cognizant of what the company can actually execute on. Otherwise, it doesn't matter as well. So I think those are the two big forces that I think about product strategy. And then it's really like building and prioritizing which lever will have the most impact. And then looking for activities that are already happening that are not actually helpful or practices already happening that are not actually helpful and being fairly ruthless at pruning them or ending them so you can experience the dividends of focus. That's great. And you mentioned too, you have to convince the CEO and the leadership team to give you space to do that. What's practical for actually developing a product strategy, right? Like how much time do you need to be able to sift through that? I imagine it's not something you come up with overnight. You know, I'd say ballpark, you need a quarter or two, depending on the company and depending on the space and the complexity and the size of the organization. You probably need a quarter or two to wrap your mind around it. I think that's fair. I think that's what you should communicate. And of course, you know, you can exceed that. But, you know, I've always, I've gotten into trouble a lot where I think I can turn on brilliance (laughs) in the first month and it's never the case. Uh, You have to respect the learning curve. And in one-on-ones, you have to sort of talk about that. And, you know, one of the sort of X factor is who are the people around you? What's your team? Sometimes if you don't have a team and you have to hire, you're going to spend more time. But sometimes you need more people to craft really great strategy. And so you might have to take a detour in hiring and so on and so forth. Yeah. So you're bringing your team in to set this product strategy too. You just talked about what's their role? Like, where do you rely on them? What do you get them to do? Right. I think it's just depth. It's confidence. If you draft up a product strategy, how confident are you that you're right about this? Well, you can be confident because you've talked to some customers. You can be confident because you understand the business environment you're in. You can be confident because you understand the ambitions of the company. But how much is that? Is that 50%? Is that 60%? You need people sometimes to go deep and say, okay, yeah, we really, really know this and so on and so forth. So is your team capable of that? Do you need more people? I think having more people is really engaging other people's intelligence to fill in your blind spots, to fill in the things you don't know. Product is not precious. I think you start sharing it as soon as you have a draft and you start listening for wisdom so that you can build something really, really solid. Great. And when your team's going deep, are they digging up certain data? Like what types of information are they bringing back to you? Well, first of all, you have two teams, right? You have an executive team. So people are looking at this from a commercial perspective, a marketing perspective, an engineering perspective, and you're getting perspective on it. You don't spring product strategy on people fully formed. So hopefully you have a receptive uh, executive team. And then your team is double-clicking on customers and making sure it's numeric and it's actual data versus intuition. 
double-clicking on competition, right? They're double-clicking on, you know, use cases that maybe weren't as detailed in, those kinds of things. Great. And so when you're working with your executive team, a lot of that is probably pulling out what is the company vision and what are the business goals. How often do you find that those are really well fleshed out? And then how much do you have to contribute to them too to get that information out of executives? I hear this complaint all the time from product leaders, like there is no business goals, just make money. So what do you do to figure out where is the business supposed to go? And, and how often do you walk into it where it's all fully formed? That's super rare. <laughs> That's a really good question because... I think you have to employ different tactics. I, I just assume that 80% of the time it, it's not there. Or even if it is there, it's a little fuzzy or it's stale. And occasionally it'll be really good. So what I do with the executive team is sort of introduce the need for it and it's for it to be well articulated. Sometimes I'll do a draft, right? A draft is a good forcing function because, you know, everyone, sometimes people don't perceive it as a problem. When you have a draft, you have, it's a lightning rod. It's something to discuss. And so I often find that, you know, I use this framework called VMSO, which is vision, mission, strategies, and objectives. I believe that if you can articulate a company's product strategy or company strategy in like a couple of pages, then you don't know what a strategy is really. It's all a PowerPoint obfuscation. So I try to draft that. And just say, look, this is a confidence level. I use that to drive conversation. And often, if it doesn't exist, then you maybe you peel off a couple of people to focus on a piece. Like, you know, I think I did this at Calendly, uh, did this at, at Parsable, where CEO and a couple of people, okay, look, we, <laughs> I own the vision and mission, so here's what we have. I don't love it. Let's tighten it up. And then match those to the strategies we want to invest in and then the key objectives and metrics. So a huge part of that is just fill the vacuum and have something that people can debate. That's been pretty effective. But be humble. Don't pretend that you're coming up with it unless it's truly, truly absent. Usually in a company, it's not, it's very, mostly not ever absent, but you can tap into what exists, make it better share the responsibility. So because it does, it's not just yours, it has to be collective. I like that a lot. Or you're saying just fill in the gaps because I've met so many people who complain that we don't have a company vision or we don't have a product strategy. And sometimes they are product leaders or they're, they're product managers, but they're not really doing much to fill in the gap. Like they're not putting anything down where anybody can react to it. They're like, we have lots of ideas, but you're not sharing them. So What's your advice for somebody who wants to get started there writing that draft? How should they go about like making sure they're humble, making sure they're presenting it in the right way to their leadership team? What kind of conversations do you have? Uh, you know, the VMSO is a framework. There are many, OGSM and so on and so forth. I've been using VMSO. I understand what the framework is. And so I will draft it. I will listen hard to the company, listen hard to the customers and say, this is our vision. This is really what we're doing. And, you know, vision is hard sometimes because it needs to be aspirational. But so you can just craft a mission right? and say, oh, we need a vision and here are like three different ideas, but write it down. It's really that simple. Sorry, I keep saying that because sometimes I, I've done things so many times, I think it's simple. And so people are like, what do you mean it's simple? <laughs> no, but write it down, write it down and then socialize it. You know, start small and one-on-one say, hey, I did this. 
and this is what I use it for, and we should discuss it. And then the next meeting, you dis- you put it up, you know, Zoom, and you discuss it. Like, okay, who needs to be part of this? Let's talk about it. Let's refine it. And, you know, it really is like, oh, second week, you're like, boom, because you don't know as much as you think you know. But at the end of a quarter, you know a ton. You have intuition. You're using your pattern recognition. And you can start having these conversations in a very thoughtful way. So it just gets started. In many cases, in many parts of not just product, but in a company, there are many vacuums. And opportunity looks like filling them and moving forward, even with a draft. Not enough people do that. Yeah, that's this bias to action that I feel like really helps people move up in the leadership positions too and helps get them recognized at companies. Like being able to, to do something to move things along. And one thing I, I, I like that you just said too, is it doesn't sound like you're saying, hey, just make up a company strategy from scratch, right? You're, you're listening to these executives and then you're translating and the customers and everybody, and you're just translating back what they're saying to you in a way that reflects what you think the company vision is and the strategy. Is that correct? That is true. You're not the CEO. Most of this is inductive. And frankly, there are probably a couple of, you know, maybe not well-ordered drafts. And so your function is to listen to the company, listen to its customers, listen for the goals, synthesize it, and synthesize it well. Your first draft should be good. The first draft people see should have been your 30th draft, right, for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, articulate it. When people see it, they see truth in it. Because if people don't see truth and thoughtfulness and wisdom in it, then they reject it instantly. They're like, you missed it. This is bullshit. We're not even going to do the entire process. Right? But if there is wisdom and truth in it, they're like, huh, that's amazing. And then they want to lean in to make it good. That's great. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. So you've worked at a variety of companies now, setting strategy across the board. And I think what's really interesting about your background is you haven't just done B2B, right, at Lassian and now Parsable. You've also done B2C at Calendly. And I've met a lot of executives and board members who think that product people have to really fall in one bucket, right? Like either B2C or B2B. Thou shalt not cross across, like cross those lines. That's one thing is very different than the other. And I agree there are some differences, but I think you're a prime example of somebody who could do both. So How does moving from one to the other affect the way that you do product strategy? Like what stays the same? What's different? That's a big question. So I'll try to answer it in in, uh, multiple perspectives on this. So I think, you know, when I was in business school, I had multiple classes in strategy. So there's this sort of classic company strategy strain of thought, which is you can break strategy down into component elements, not just at the product level, but at the business level. And I think that's very useful for me. I took a course at Columbia called Napoleon's Glance, which was about how to come up with intuitively great strategy. And it worked by sort of looking at people in history who had come up with really transformative strategy and tactics 
and how they did it. And, you know, the classic example is Napoleon and how he won 99% of all the battles in Europe. And there was a lot of them. And how did he do that? How did he have a flash of insight to do that? And then I took another one with Reza Mozami, who was at Berkeley. I did a joint MBA with Berkeley at Columbia. Got me two MBAs, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. But Reza taught, you know, strategy for telecommunications, media, and telecom companies. And he broke it down into component elements. What makes a good strategy? What pieces, what gives economic advantage? And so those classical elements of, you know, frameworks of strategy helps me think about product strategy in a detailed way. So I actually feel like I can come up with a company strategy. And because I feel able to do that, I feel like I come up with a product strategy regardless of the company. If you put me in a healthcare software company, I, I should be able to come up with strategy. That's what I think and that's what I believe. And that's what my classical training has offered for me. But here's another perspective. I'm planning to write about this a little more, but I think that software companies have gone through three eras. I think there was a, an era of technology where we really, customers are hobbyists and it was very early, so 40 years ago. And as an era of utility, where this became a way to yield efficiency in the world. And we were selling to CIOs, right, mostly. And we were full of, you know, this was sort of the era that I grew up in initially at Microsoft. We were selling utility. We were like, okay, we've built some cool stuff. Here's how it works in the enterprise. And by the way, here's our licensing. and We're going to make a lot of money off of you. And this is where companies became all the billionaires that exist were made. But I think we're in a third age of convenience. People don't care about technology so much. They want their workflow to be optimized. They want their life to work. I think the ethos in software across the board, B2B, B2C, and of course, consumer is we have to be so simple. We have to be like the people who made the Swiffer, the Swiffer WebJet. No one cares how the Swiffer works. Is it, is it a really good mop? That's it. I actually think that that's, it sounds terrible because, you know, in I come from a world that have like 14, 15 patents. And, you know, I've always prided myself in being clever about how to build clever, technologically deep things, you know? And, you know, the first decade of product management was all about that. But consumers want to be satisfied. That's ultimately it. We solve problems. We solve it in clever ways, in beautifully designed ways. And so what that means is that every enterprise company, and this is maybe a bet with your audience, will become essentially B2C in 10 years. So that's clarifying for CPOs. It's converging on that kind of ease of use. And in fact, you can do a lot as an enterprise company by extending your total addressable market by going not from the high end, but extending it to the mid-market as well. And if you can do both things, it's hard to do both things well, but if you can, you have a much bigger market to address. So... I think product strategy is converging. Now, in practice, B2B enterprise product strategy just has to be much more cognizant of the go-to-market, the people, the salespeople, the marketing people, and sometimes the lack of systems. So it has to, when I say learn about the DNA of your company, you craft strategy that takes that into account. You also craft strategy that takes the conflicts that come with transitioning from just enterprise to much more consumer ethos into account as part of your like, okay, this is how it goes through time. Because obviously you're not going to be really consumer ethos on day one. In a 
classic, like Atlassian and Cali, you don't have those arguments. Everyone is mostly aligned and you have just a, a huge party. But if you want to be a B2B, you have to, uh, first strategy, you have to anticipate those things and build it in. That's great. I really love the way that you synthesized that and talked about it. And the, the, particularly when you talked about B2B is going to be B2C one day. And I see that. I have these really long, hard conversations with B2B people where they're like, oh, user experience doesn't matter. Like they have to use it. I think I've had that conversation maybe 90 million times in my life, right? It's this thing where, well, the people at the company are forced to use it. So it doesn't matter how easy it is to use. It doesn't matter if it's slick and a cool product because, you know, all the worker bees have to use it. And basically what you're saying is, you know, that's not true. One day, it's all going to compress and it's going to be the consumer's choice there. Um, doing that, that way I can build software that disrupts them. They should yeah. keep doing that. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so keep building terrible products, please. We would like to build better ones. That no, is I, an opportunity for me. Thank you very much. Keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's true. Like you see it, you just see it over and over again. I actually had somebody in a workshop a couple of months ago and I know a couple, it was probably a couple of years ago. I was like, last time I traveled to do a workshop, which has not been any time in the last year, but she was talking about how she had to build an internal tool even for somebody. The tool, everybody was like, no, we don't want this tool. And her boss said, no, you just have to build it. It's okay. The people are going to be forced to use it inside the company. It doesn't matter if it's great. We just decide to buy this tool. You have to implement it. And she actually had people walk out like they left. They were like, we will quit our job if we have to keep using this. And you see that more, right? With the tools that people use, it actually affects everybody's day-to-day life. Even 10 years ago, we were talking about this consumer, I forget the term. It was a popular term at Microsoft. We saw it coming. We used to sell to the CIO, but now information workers have leverage. They have sharp preferences for the thing, the tool that gives them productivity. You know, if you think about economic theory, we work just enough to earn our leisure, yeah? And so that means productivity is a real thing and people have preferences for those things. As information workers have demanded more, you know, compensation and salary and so on, they have, and they become more precious to the uh, profits that an organization makes, their ability to, they have rested purchasing power essentially from the CIO. And because they're used to certain things in their personal life and it's blurred completely, that ethos is, like if you play it out five, 10 years, that's the ethos. So yes, we're all building Coke. All of us are building Coke. And we just, some people haven't seen that yet, but that's all we're doing. You know, if you go to your grocery store, you see, you know, pineapple Coke, this one now, all built from the same fact. Why are they doing this? They know their customers. They know their preferences. You are not better than uh, Procter & Gamble. Trust me. No matter how smart your software is, how much AI is, you can learn a lot from those guys. (laughs) So I just think that that's self-evidently true. If we talk about consumer-driven IT or whatever that term is, this is a logical end state and end game for it. So does that, you talked at Calendly a lot about product-led growth, right? And the strategy, that's the strategy that you found there and it went viral. Tell me a little bit more about what is product-led growth and how does it relate to this consumer mindset? Product-led growth is just like being able to have a fast-wearing product without deploying oodles of marketing and oodles of sales. 
And so what makes that true? Well, first of all, your product has to be good. It has to have product market fit. It has to have a good brand, good word of mouth. Cali has that in spades. The name is actually pretty intriguing and great word of mouth. I speak a lot about virality. It's better if it's viral. And virality is sort of multidimensional. It's, you know, in Cali's case, it's sort of intrinsically viral, which is you need two people to have a meeting, two more people. So people who use Cali are constantly introducing other people to Cali. But it can also be viral in terms of word of mouth, right? It can be viral either generally or in a particular industry or kind of persona. It's viral with fanatical customer support. People love it because they get help all the time and people appreciate service. It can be viral through invitations. We're onboarding people very quickly with lots of people. At Atlassian, we created a third kind of user. We had only two kinds. We had users and admins. But when I was growth hacking stride, we decided that we needed a third type. So for the first 10 users were medium admins and they could invite everyone else. More regular users couldn't do that, right? And so that was a viral mechanism because we wanted to make it easier and faster to spread. So those are all the different things. And of course, ultimately it's network effect. How can you engineer your product that one additional person into your product makes everyone else well off by doing zero work, which is network effects? How can you do that? So these are all the techniques, you know, branding, you know, great product, word of mouth, invitations, great customer support and success. Yeah, network effects. These are all techniques to building greater product-led growth. It's really interesting too, because you're, you're talking about how Atlassian used some of that viral, you know, the viral components of it, the network effects. Those terms you just used, I hear them all over the place in that go- growth marketing hacker world. <laughs> Right, but you never hear about them in like the Jira world or, or like the B2B world. But what you're saying is we can actually use some of those in B2B. So what types of things should you look at in a B2B context to kind of harness some of that virality? Like what are some tips and tricks you can give for people in that context? Honestly, I think it's the things I've said. What I think is, look, everybody's turning towards consumer anyway. And so the product-led ethos straps on rocket boosts to any product. The thing you have to be mindful of is culture, right? What has to change culturally to harness that that rocket boost? Why shouldn't your product just have clear pricing, psychologically safe pricing? Why shouldn't your product, people start? Why can't people have a free tier or a free trial? Why can't they just give a credit card without talking to you? There is no product on earth that wouldn't benefit from some version of this regardless of whether you're making $1 billion sales. Now, that's actually the hyperbole, right? There might be, but you have to ask yourself really, like, why would we be so exclusive? Are customers truly super high touch every single time? Even if they are today, do they need to be tomorrow? Because, you know, you have to expand your market, your addressable market constantly to stay in the game. You know, think about the big companies, uh, Google. A lot of their mid-market sales isn't done in high dollar. So in many ways, the traditional companies are already product-led growth, right? We just don't think about it that way. Atlassian certainly is sort of invented product-led growth, but they're already that way and they're hyper-successful. What's What makes you special? Yeah, I like that. And that's your competitive advantage that you can take, a, take with to fuel your product-led growth is what you're saying. So doubling down on what makes you special. Actually, I'm saying that if they can do it, if big... Oh. 
companies can do it, big giant companies have been around for 30, 40 years or whatever, then any company can do it. Any B2B startup can do it. Any B2B company can do it. And now, it, like I said, it has to be done in your context, but bias to making the buyer journey and the satisfaction of your customer, not just through the product, but also through things like onboarding and virality and you know, introduction to the product, even the help center, you know, use more videos. Don't just use text. This, that's the world is changing. So what makes customers better off in almost every area of your business is product growth. So there's a lot that you're talking about that fuels product-led growth, right? You were talking about like the customer success part, you have to get your sales down, you have to bring all those things together. Where do you usually run into friction when you try to implement these ways of working inside an organization? Usually it's just cultural. You know, first of all, within the R&D team, sometimes there's not a lot of customer centricity. Some organizations are engineering-led and product managers just take orders and just try to shape technology, right? And that's already a mismatch. I said there are three ages. It's the age of convenience. So if you're already in that sort of engineering-led, shape it before it releases, you've already lost the game, especially if you have competition. And then if you go into the broader company, B2B companies that don't do product-led have their lack certain skills, right, I think. And they have cultural resistance to product-led because sometimes product-led means a range of ASPs, for example, which is related to sales comp plans and so on and so forth. So there's usually, to me, it's a cultural thing. And being product-led usually comes to a realization from the top that this is the salvation. This is how we expand our business. I did a, a podcast or a webinar with the CEO of Vidyard and how it's inspiring how he transformed his business from super enterprise sales to B to B to C. They created a new product and they went mid-market and transformed their company and caused it to start growing again. And so a lot of people, whether it's through hype, you know, it's like people say cloud and people say PLG is, a, is popular. A lot of people are realizing, holy crap, like maybe this is our salvation. Some know what they're doing and some don't. But luckily, I think this is not just hype if people really understand what it means. Because I think when I talk about the age of convenience, the super trends make PLG essentially true for almost everybody. I'm trying to think of what my next question is, but I think that is so good. I'm like wrapped up in what you're saying. That's amazing. So I work with a lot of organizations who would listen to you saying this, like everybody can adopt product-led growth. Some of them are banks, some of them are older organizations, and the culture is not there, right? Like they don't believe they can actually do these things. And you're mentioning that it starts on the top. Do you think great chief product officers or great product leaders can help change those cultures? Or do you think, you know, they're just out there and they're going to have to play catch up with the, you know, fintechs of the world or the startups? Like, is there hope for these older organizations where this isn't coming from the top? You know, I think it's, uh, you know, carrot and stick. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The stick part is if you're not, you're probably going to lose in the long run. Someone will eat your lunch. You know, at Microsoft, we were always paranoid. Intel in the early days was paranoid. We were paranoid about this all the time. It came second nature. It was second nature for us to second guess and ask, how can we be better? How can we be better? What can we do? It didn't always come from a customer-centric part, but it was that paranoia of satisfying needs, being better than competition in technology and so on and so forth. So 
Sure, a lot of people have captive audiences, but every so- every company is a software company. So if you don't become more customer-centric, if we're all building Coke and you, uh, I feel like I don't want to insult any soda, but you're building something less than Coke, <laughs> you will lose. Like you can't, I mean, how can you compete? You know, that's a stick. The carrot is, you know, smart product leaders. And I don't want to just say product leaders because hopefully there's a senior PM or PM listening. And I actually was teaching a class and I was talking about this. I remember the time at Microsoft when I first learned that when I meet someone, I should appeal to their heart and not their head, right? Microsoft was very competitive and everyone wanted to be seen as smart because it assembled the smartest people on the planet. Everyone I met the first few years of Microsoft was the best at everything they did since the time they were like freaking five years old. <laughs> so you assemble these people together and you got them to compete, which, you know, created amazing innovation. But it was quite challenging to your confidence. You know, these people didn't know how to fail. And someone had to fail relatively. So it took me a few years actually to have this epiphany. You know what? I'm not always trying to prove that I'm smart. I'm trying to get people to care about what I say. So underrated skill for product people. You cannot, especially as if your company is, you know, they're software companies, consumer, enterprise, blah, blah, blah. And then there are companies that use technology and increasing their investment in software, services, infrastructure, whatever, right? Those companies, their ethos and their culture is even further away from product-led growth. You have to make that calculation. You have to understand your company. CPOs are not magical people or product managers are not magical people. So your ability to bring people along, to get allies, because you need a lot of belief from the top. You know, cultural change is hard. It's one of the hardest things you can do as a human, regardless of companies. You can even change the culture in your own family sometimes (laughs) because it's so calcified, right? You're like a dad or a mom. People, your family will ignore you. So you have to engage allies, your CEO, other executives, navigate conflict, look beneath conflict. People argue about something, but really they're insecure. And so you have to think about all those things and have high emotional intelligence to be able to make cultural change so that people understand that we all benefit when we're building Coke. We all benefit when we help, we center the customer in all our decisions, not just in a fake way, but in a real way. Sounds like a lot of interpersonal dynamics that go into those changes. Lots of culture shifts there. But I, one, well, one, I'm a little upset that you said that we weren't magic as uh, chief product officers or product managers. I burst my bubble over here. Um, <laughs> but I agree. I do think it's, it's hard to change a whole culture. I've seen so many amazing chief product officers walk into places that just were not bought in to do this product-led growth or make a change. And they just burnt out there. They, they were butting their heads against it. So I, I like what you said about really trying to figure out what is your context and where are you before you dive into that and before you take on that challenge. If you are a chief product officer and you find out like, hey, this company isn't what, what I thought it was, you know, what do you do? Like, how long do you think you should fight or how long do you think you should uh, keep trying to make it work? Oh, gosh, it depends. I, I think that's such an individual. Hopefully, by the time you're a chief product officer, you're a super introspective, whole human being. <laughs> yeah. And so you can have, 
you know, honest conversations with your CEO, with the board, honest conversations with yourself. I think I would just recommend transparency in one-on-ones with your CEO. Not just like, I'm tired now, but bringing them along the journey of how you're processing being in the company. And I think, you know, eventually you have to make a decision for yourself. When do you cut bait? You know, every second you spend is life force being expended. And in certain cases, it's for you because you're a shareholder, uh, even however small. In certain cases, it's for investors. And so you have to conserve your life energy and make sure you're spending in the right spot for you. That's great. And I think that's pretty good advice too for just regular product managers as well. You don't have to be a, a CPO, but maybe you're not a whole person yet. Maybe you still haven't figured out what you want to do with your life. I like that advice for them too. No, I think so. I think it's for every worker. I think the question is just leverage, you know. Some people don't have a ton of choice and they have to sort of stick it up and endure it. And the recessions which affect that ebb and flow of power for the employee and opportunity, how much of a brand have you built for yourself and can you have opportunities? So it's a multidimensional calculus equation, but hopefully you center your life force and what's valuable and you have people who can help you find alternatives if that's what you really need to do. Yeah, that's great. So like really focusing on building your brand and making sure that people know who you are and what you're looking for. I think that gives you more options. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, OG. Uh, Where can people connect with you and learn more, read some of your work? You can follow me on Twitter, Ajir Dezwe, O-J-I-U-D-E-Z-U-E. I'm on Medium, where I try to reflect about product and life sometimes, but mostly product and strategy. I think those are the main places that you can find me. LinkedIn as well. And that's it. Don't find me anywhere else. (laughs) Don't come knocking (laughs) on your door. (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, Melissa. Appreciate it.